Explain, 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 chanted Miss N to our shocked English class, and she was my foul-mouthed, exceptionally intelligent, tenacious high school English teacher. And uh, as she chanted that particular day, she sashayed her mom jean-clad hips in an awkward hula dance. Her arms were swinging above her head, finger-snapping to the beat of this strange, strange little song. Oh, and I, I mean, I forgot to mention that this whole thing was going down as she was standing on my desk. My desk! The desk of a fairly sheltered former homeschooled preacher's kid. I'm never going to forget that day as long as I live. It is forever seared into my memory. Not only because this was the first and only time, Mom, in case you're listening, the first and only time I'd ever seen anyone dance on a table before, but mainly because this message has massively defined my entire approach to communication and leadership to this very day. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. This track is too ironic. Well, hey, everybody, we are back. We are back for good this time. It's been a crazy season of travel and new routines for the family on top of some technical difficulties and internet issues I had last week, but we are settled into a new routine and we are back on track. And I am so excited about this next phase of the podcast. And we've got a whole bunch of episodes mapped out with some in uh, studio guests, as well as some exciting interviews and fresh content to, to bring to all of you. So thank you for your patience with me. And by all means, keep sharing and keep listening. But let's get back to English class with my teacher, Miss N. Now, she was table dancing that day because she was trying to correct a behavior in the writing habits of our grade 13 advanced English class. See, back in my day, way back in the day when I went to high school, because I'm, I'm exceedingly old now, for those wanting to go to university in the province of Ontario, there was this layer of classes called Ontario Academic Credit, or OAC, otherwise known as grade 13. And it was... Uh, prep for university and it was advanced level subjects that immersed you into the pressure and academic level of what you would experience as you moved into undergraduate studies and Miss N was our last pit stop before we all got kicked into the deep end of university and she had to fix us because we had a problem we had a problem of making definitive statements in our writing especially our essays and we would make these definitive statements without providing context or explanation. And the end result of this writing habit was extremely poor argumentation. We weren't making our points well. We weren't engaging and we weren't convincing. And, and here's why. We were making some very fatal assumptions about our audience. Three, in, in, in fact, if you're making notes, number one, we were making the fatal assumption that they knew more than what they really did, that our audience was somehow more informed than what they truly were about the subject that, uh, that we were writing about. Number two, that they cared about the topic like we did, that because we made the assumption that because we cared and we were passionate and we were writing, that they would somehow care too. 
And fatal assumption number three is that they would believe us simply because we said so. So Miss Anne table danced to sear into our brains, explain, explain, explain. Don't assume I know. Don't assume I care. Make your case. Prove it to me. Explain, explain, explain. Now, as as humans using words to communicate anything of value, we have got to hear Miss N's very important words. We must explain, explain, explain. As leaders, as preachers, as teachers, as parents, disciple makers, followers of Jesus, whether we are seeking to share the Bible, whether we're wanting to cast vision to teams, whether we're just wanting to provide direction to someone seeking our advice, we have to explain, explain, explain. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to use Miss N's rules. There are two of them, and we're going to talk about what they mean to us and why they are so important. So we're going to use Miss Ann's rules. All right, so if you're making notes, write down number one. Don't assume that your audience knows what you're talking about. Don't assume that your audience knows what you're talking about. Sometimes as leaders, as, as preachers, as teachers, are those aspiring to the same. We suffer from what Chip and Dan Heath, the two communication experts, uh, call the curse of knowledge. They wrote about it in their great book, Made to Stick. We suffer from the curse of knowledge, and, and the curse of knowledge is simply this. We've known for so long that we forget what it is like not to know. We've immersed ourselves into a subject so deeply that we can speak on it with a fair amount of authority. It's, it's so easy. It's so simple to us. I mean, everybody understands this. We've meditated on it. We've thought through the nuances. It feels like second nature. And I think that's wonderful. If you as a leader, uh, as anyone who is an influencer that's listening to this podcast, I, I hope that you really know the Bible. I hope that you can really explain doctrine and theology well. I, I hope you know how to use the tools and the apps that run your ministry and your teams. And I hope you know how to articulate vision and values at any moment, at the drop of a hat. You just, you just know everything. But when you've known for so long that you have forgotten what it's like not to know, you can create a gap within your communication. And in order to fix that gap, You need to explain, explain, explain. You need to make sure that people know what you are talking about. So here are three things that you can use to make sure that people know what you are talking about. Number one, provide context. Provide context. Now, the dictionary definition of context is the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. So context is like the background details. It's, it's the stuff that, that is draped around the core idea that you're talking about that provides it some meaning. 
So if you're preaching or teaching, who are the biblical characters you are referring to? What is the book of the Bible that you are referring to? If you are announcing a decision or casting a vision, tell people about the preceding events and conversations and ideas and philosophies that led to the making of that decision. Give people the relevant background information. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be long-winded. In fact, you shouldn't be long-winded. It just means that you need to provide context. Number two, Explain what you mean. Explain what you mean and make application and define boundaries of what you mean. Don't fill your words with jargon and sayings that explain what you mean. Speak with some specificity. And number three, repeat important points. Repeat vision and values every leadership meeting. Our discipleship pastor, Robert Watson, reads our vision and values every time he meets with his team of Bible study teachers. I would recommend if you got vision and values as part of your organization, that those things are repeated often. More importantly to, you know, pastors and preachers and even parents, Repeat core doctrines, repeat core ideas that are connected to the faith. Get in a rhythm of regularly reopening the things that are a, that are fundamental to the faith. Calendar them, find new ways to make them stick, find new ways to sell those ideas to the people that are looking to you. Just because you've said it once doesn't mean that I'm going to remember it. Doesn't mean that the people looking at you are going to remember it. Andy Stanley said this, that vision must be communicated around seven times before people hear it. And here's the deal. As people of influence, we're not going for basic recall. Especially when it comes to matters of faith and discipleship, we are trying to get ideas, doctrines, strategies, approaches to life deep into the hearts and minds of people so that those things become an integral component of who they are. Now, Miss Ann had another rule that I referenced already at the beginning. I think it's an amazing rule. Her second rule was don't assume I care. So the first rule is don't assume that I know what you're talking about. The second rule was don't assume I care. Just because you care doesn't mean they will. Doesn't mean I will. Let me put yourself in the position of those that you lead and influence and that hear you and your audience Help me understand why this is important. Why should I feel the same way that you do? Why should should I embrace this with the passion that you are embracing it? As more and more millennials and especially Gen Zers join our teams, join our congregations, become the mission field that we are called to reach, we have got to embrace the reality that this emerging generation is far more pragmatic than what the church is ever used to, than what any family unit or family tradition or heritage is ever used to. And this means it's, it's so important that we tell people why it matters and why they should care about it with equal weight and time as we give them the what. We got to continually communicate the value of our values, of our ideas, of our theology, and of our practices. Because we live in a culture where people can grasp that an idea is true and still not care. They can think you're right and not care at all. This is crazy to those that have lived in generations, you know, they have a worldview of generations gone by that 
if something was true, truth was the only weight that something needed to be given in order for an idea or philosophy to be embraced. Not today. Something can be embraced or believed as true, but just because it's true is not going to be sufficient enough. You have to demonstrate the value of the truth. And this means it's practical everyday life impact, the ability of this truth to shape the way you see the world, the difference it'll make in somebody's life, and the consequences that unbelief and a lack of obedience and a lack of trust in the fruit that this truth brings. And if we're going to be able to convince people to care, we're going to have to appeal to both the head and the heart. To demonstrate value, we've got to appeal to both the head and the heart. Our arguments have to be logically sound. This is the head. Our premises must lead to the obvious conclusion. But we can't be dry, so we've got to hit the feelings too. We've got to use stories, got to use illustrations, got to use media, visuals, whatever we got to do to strike the heart as we convince the mind. These two approaches have got to be held in tension with each other by anyone who desires to be an influencer, especially if you desire to be a disciple maker at at some point in your life and in your ministry. Because if you don't hit the heart, you miss all of the depths of the emotions that drives people to act and causes them to respond. If you want to motivate people, you have to strike the heart. You have to give them a vision of the future. You have to tell them a story of what life is going to be like if they embrace this truth, this teaching, this idea. If they embrace it wholeheartedly with their life and obey it, you've got to paint them the picture of what their life will be like at the same time. No, and again, I'm going to put myself in the, in the shoes of the audience here. No, I'm going to be checking your claims. I'm going to be Googling your presentation of the facts. And if you've captured me emotionally in the moment, but your facts are wrong, your claim about the Bible false, or your statement's too much of a stretch for me to get to the conclusion, if you've captured my emotions but not my mind, I'm going to, I'm going to wonder if you're trying to manipulate me. And I'll struggle to trust you. Strike the heart so that I care, strike the mind, so that I'll believe what you're telling me is the truth. Explain, explain, explain. But the reason why we must explain goes way beyond becoming a better communicator. Because there is a more crucial issue at stake. There, there, is, a, there is a crisis, I, I think, in the life of the church and those that would lead in the church that I feel, you know, without over-spiritualizing this podcast, feel led of the Lord to try to tackle to the best of my ability. There's a crucial issue at stake, and I'm extremely passionate about this. Because if we fail, if we fail at this, the consequences will go beyond a few, you know, weird quizzical looks in the crowd or bored faces because we're not engaging with people emotionally. 
if we fail to explain what we mean and why it matters, we risk a total loss of meaning. See, when there is a loss of explanation, there is a loss of common or shared meaning. And when people no longer know what something is or why it matters, they will cease to believe it. This is what George Orwell calls the effect of becoming the cause in his incredible essay, Politics and the English Language. It's, it's another high school story, no table dancing involved. It was grade 12 English class, and, and we were, again, talking about the power of language and communication. And we read this essay by George Orwell called Politics and the English Language, and it had a huge impact on my life. And don't you worry, I'm going to make application to this idea very, very shortly. And it may be one of the more controversial moments in my podcast series. And, and I'm not aiming to offend, but I, I feel the need to explain, explain, explain. And George Orwell in this particular essay, if I can backtrack for a second, he was speaking about the collapse of language and political and public life. And one of his First big points that he that he makes in this essay is that the poor use of words can be so devastating that it can harm our private and corporate ability to think clearly. Here's what he says, an effect can become a cause, reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form and so on indefinitely. And then he gives a very practical explanation of what he means of this effect to becoming the cause. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure and then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier to have foolish thoughts. For our purposes, a failure to explain what and why is going to lead us to a lack of clarity. And a lack of clarity in the minds, especially of those that we lead and those that we influence. And a lack of clarity will lead to a growing inability to explain the what and the why of our values and beliefs at all. Now, here are two ways, and again, I lean on Orwell's essay for this, two ways that people can poorly communicate that contribute to a, a loss of shared meaning within an organization and within the church and even within a family. In his essay, he talks about stale imagery and a lack of precision. And again, I know this is heavy for a little bit, but if you stay with me, we are going to make real-world application to this and hopefully provoke you to think. The first way that we can poorly communicate that leads to the contribution, our contribution, to a loss of meaning within those that we lead is stale imagery. Stale imagery is this overuse of descriptive phrases that are long past their expiration date. Another word for them is dying metaphors. So here, here's some examples in common language before we wade into the practical application of the podcast here. So he, here's some examples. Ear to the wheel. Nose to the grindstone. We, we got to put our ear to the wheel or we got to put our nose to the grindstone. I'm sure you've heard those phrases before. Someone says we need to work hard or we need to get, we need to make it happen. We need to get it done. They're like, we got to put the ear to the wheel and our nose to the grindstone. Well, what does that even mean? When's the last time you put your ear to a wheel at all? 
And unless you're like a natural deodorant-wearing hipster with a waxed mustache, living with your mom, no job, when's the last time that you ground anything at all? Probably never. I've never ground anything at all. You bought your flour in a five-pound bag at Walmart like a regular, normal, developed human being. Neither you nor the audience, through those phrases, are able to stir up any actual image. See, here's, here's what we do as leaders. To help people comprehend what we mean, we use descriptive words and phrases to, to create a visual image inside people's minds so that they understand what we're talking about. But those, those, I, those visual images, those descriptive phrases can become stale over time. They can become jargon and code. And sometimes, rather than inventing fresh images that captivate hearts and minds, we just repeat the same phrases over and over and over and over again. And the problem is, these familiar-sounding phrases, they elicit agreement from the audience because they're like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to care about this. We, we care about this. This is an important phrase. I, I have to stand and clap my hands now. I should respond emotionally to it. But because they provoke no stirring mental image, no one actually envisions what you mean. They're just responding to a goad. They're just being provoked. And soon we're just saying stuff. We're parroting what people have heard and what people have told us. We're parroting what we have heard others say. And the problem with this in the life of a leader is that it's lazy. Stale imagery, dying metaphors, parroting useless phrases without explanation is just lazy in the life of a leader and it creates no clarity and contributes to a loss of shared meaning within those that you lead. The second way that we can poorly communicate in a way that contributes to a loss of of meaning within the life of those that we lead is the lack of of precision, the lack of precision. Again, we lean on Orwell's essay to kind of flesh the idea out a little bit for us. He writes, as soon as certain subjects are raised, the concrete melts into the abstract. Prose consists less and less of words chosen for the sake of their meaning and more and more of phrases tacked together like sections of a prefabricated hen house. You can hear the frustration in the tone of Orwell in this essay. In, in, when you read the essay, and I'll post the link in the show notes, it, he's so frustrated. He's so frustrated with the political dialogue of his day because all of the politicians are saying a whole lot of words yet not actually talking about anything. It's just string of phrase after phrase after phrase that excites their voting block, but they're not actually talking about the issues whatsoever. I can totally see this happening in the, in the life of spiritual leaders. But this lack of precision is a, is a bit different than the idea or the concept of stale imagery or dying metaphors because lack of precision is not usually done out of laziness. It's out of fear or selfish ambition that our words and our speaking and our communication lacks Precision. And by precision, I mean where we say exactly what we mean. But when we lack precision, we we speak in code. We speak in jargon. We speak in the dying and stale metaphors. And we make no real life, real world 
application. So thus, whatever is said is open to interpretation, and people can apply it however they see fit. But at no point do you speak with specificity and possibly upset or offend the audience. Too often we speak like politicians instead of apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, or teachers. And if we are going to communicate truth and we are going to be talking about Jesus in a way that points people to him, in a way that cuts through the noise of our culture, in a way that ensures that values and doctrine and belief about Jesus endures from generation to generation until Jesus is finished with this age of the church and he comes back. We have to speak with precision and not be afraid to wade into some really kind of murky and scary waters where we call stuff out and and we speak specifically. And I'm going to do that right now. Let me, I've been building up to this point. Let, let me jump into something that could be controversial to some people for a moment, but I, I feel compelled to, to actually practice what I'm talking about right here. Let me give an example of where a lack of precision can hurt a leader or a pastor or a spiritual influencer when it comes to language and words. I want to talk about the use of the word apostolic. The use of the word apostolic. Now, before you turn me off or tune me out, I want you to hear me. I'm not against using the word. I'm not against using theological words. I I think the Bible is rife with theological words, and even we as human beings, when we attempt to articulate our ideas, we, we have words that kind of encapsulate all that we mean. Those are theological words. I, I think we got to use them. I don't think we need to dumb down anything for anybody at any point. I don't think that serves the church. But here's what I am 100% against. I'm against using the word as a stamp of automatic approval without explanation. When you use the word, when you say the word apostolic, what, what do you even mean? What images, what concepts, what ideas does that elicit within your mind? And, and after you narrow that down, what does apostolic even mean? What, what images, what concepts, what ideas that, that are tied to reality that express the, express the concept and the theology behind the word? Am I applying it then? Am I using this word appropriately? Or has it become a dead metaphor to you? Has it become a word that is tacked together with other words because you know it gets a response from the crowd and that's what you're looking for? Is it something that you just throw around so that you can avoid actually talking specifically about issues and you can talk in code and fit in with whatever crowd that you're with in the moment? See, here's what apostolic, I believe, actually means. Let me contend for a definition and I quote in in part in this definition from Developing an Apostolic Worldview by uh, Dr. David Bernard. Apostolic means that we believe that the church today should preach the same message and receive the same experience as the church 
that we read about in the New Testament. It's, it's this fundamental worldview and belief that there is one true God, our creator and father. Jesus Christ is the one true God manifest in flesh to be our savior. And the Holy Spirit is God at work in our lives today. And we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that the New Testament church is the model, is the paradigm for the church today. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith, and that includes a new birth according to Acts 2.38 and a host of other scriptures. We believe that we are to pursue a new life of holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit, that holiness is inward and outward, personal and social. And it means that we should, because the New Testament church is the paradigm, follow the practical teachings of the New Testament in all areas of our life, from our attitudes, our relationship, our speech, our dress, our daily activities, really all conduct runs itself through the lens of the Word of God. Apostolic means that we should seek to embody the same passion for the mission of growing and expanding the church in the 21st century as they did in the first It's believing that the church does not exist for itself. The church exists for both the glory of Jesus and the reaching of sinners with his gospel. It means that we view ourselves as vagabonds and pilgrims in our own nations of origin because we have embraced and literally been spiritually born into the kingdom of God. And that whatever identity... And whatever ethnicity, whatever ideology that I have been born to in my particular culture is automatically superseded by the fact that I am now part of the kingdom of heaven. It's the belief that there is a culture of the kingdom and that culture in the kingdom should supersede my life, my preferences, be they social, political, economic. It means that we are constantly holding up our culture to God's word and repenting of the things in us that reveal the culture that we come from instead of the kingdom that we are now a part of. And where these ideas are not present in the church, we are seeking to restore ourselves and the church to that New Testament model of belief and practice. This is what it means to be an apostolic. Now, each of these points mentioned here, they've got to be thought through. They need to be wrestled with. They need to be contended for and then applied. Applied in a real-world, real-life context. This is what it means to be apostolic. Thus, we, we can't just throw the word around. We can't throw the word around however we wish so that we can garner a response. See, because what has happened is to call something apostolic has been an endorsement of its practice. To simply throw the title on it as if it's an adjective as opposed to, you know, a doctrinal or theological word that is rife with concepts and ideas that bleed into the human experience. It's used as an adjective so that however it's applied, obviously whatever it's applied to is automatically good because it now bears the moniker apostolic. Should that be the case? And does that thing deserve the adjective of a theological word to it? Or is it somehow to prop that thing up? To say that something is not apostolic has been to pronounce judgment a death sentence on methods and ministry approaches, even a way to mark people as not sincerely embracing 
the ideas and values of the New Testament church. They're not apostolic. That's not apostolic. My problem is not that we would call something really apostolic or not apostolic. It's that the way I've seen it done is that it's done without explanation. Rather than speaking with precision, we speak in veiled words. Just because you call something apostolic doesn't mean that it is. Make your case. Speak with precision. Explain, explain, explain. Likewise, especially if you're going to brand someone or something, an idea as not pertaining to the values of the New Testament church, not embodying the culture of mission and holiness and consecration to Jesus as we see in the New Testament church. You need to make your case and you need to own your words and speak specifically. What is it about this idea? What is it about this method or ministry that makes it apostolic or not so? And and I know we have listeners that are not part of the apostolic movement, not part of the United Pentecostal Church. I guess the buzzword for the evangelical word would be biblical. Don't just throw that word around either. Make your case. How is this biblical? How does this tie to the doctrines and teachings of the New Testament church? How does this idea embody the concepts as found in the scriptures? The reason why is we have to ensure that we're not propping up our own preferences or cultural worldview, or we're not tearing down a doctrine that is very rooted in the Bible because it's not palatable to your modern mind. And one possible objection to what I'm saying is, well, what about the leading of the Spirit? Sometimes God can convict, sometimes God can lead, and, and, and he may not necessarily give you all of the details as to why as to why you should or should not do something. Well, of course. Of course I believe in discernment. But you can make that case too. What I'm saying is we should not hide behind unexplained terms. We should own our words. We're not politicians who need the masses to agree with us. We are contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. So if you are genuinely concerned about the direction of a friend, a brother, or a sister, that their life is not headed in, their ministry is not headed in a direction that honors God and honors these fundamental principles of the the New Testament church, do not speak to them in veiled euphemisms, but speak specifically and call it out. Say, look, dude, I'm worried you've become obsessed with fame. And that's not what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to be servants. Look, I think that you've become bitter over these things that have been said into your life. I think that you've become bitter over the the criticisms you've received or the gossip that's been spoken against you. And look, I can do nothing about what people spoke about you or spoke to you or said behind your back, but I can tell you now that if you let those words 
bring bitterness into your heart, eventually it will destroy you and you will become disillusioned. When you speak about apostolic identity, speak with precision. This is one of the reasons why I love the general conference message from uh, this past general conference with Brother Bernard is that he, he didn't just say the word apostolic identity. He then spelled out exactly what he meant by how we bear the identity of the early New Testament church in the 21st century. He spelled it out. Speak with precision. Speak with precision. But here's, here's the thing. In order to speak with precision, you need to actually know what you're talking about. You can't just run on emotion. You can't just run on impressions or, or fear. You've got to know if it is a spiritual discernment thing. You have to know absolutely the Lord is speaking to you. And based on that leading and that guiding that you know is from the word of God, you are going to make this decision. Or if you are going to make a claim as to whether or not a method, a belief, a practice, a doctrine, an idea is or is not connected to the tenets of the apostolic faith. You need to deeply know what the apostolic faith is and be able to make the case. You need to explain, 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 explain. I remember when worship wars exploded in churches like way back in the day, and you had one camp on one side that's like, these new songs aren't apostolic. And then I had, you know, other groups on the other side, they're like, these new songs are apostolic because apostolic is missional. We got to reach and all this other kind of stuff. And at no point, did anyone say maybe we're using the wrong words to talk about our personal opinions? And maybe what really matters is not styles of stuff, but whether or not the Spirit of God can move and Jesus is being glorified and we're reaching all people, and whether that's new song, old song, middle-of-the-road song from the 90s, whatever it is, as long as it's working and people are connecting to God's presence and they're falling in love with Jesus, that's what matters Speak with precision. Make your case. Don't be afraid to, to lovingly disagree and contend for the faith with a brother or sister. Be afraid to call them up and say, help me understand where you're coming from because this is where I'm coming from. Peter and Paul opposed one another to the face and they handled their business. That, that's, that's real leadership. That's admirable leadership to me. But in order to speak with precision, you need to actually know what you're talking about. Here's what I love about um, authors like uh, Dr. Littles, Dr. Norris, and then uh, Dr. David Bernard, is they have the ability to explain difficult concepts in a few words, and it's accessible to so many because they've studied, they've thought, they've prayed, they've meditated deeply about the issues, and they've immersed their heart so they can speak clearly and specifically. I believe it's incumbent upon us as leaders in this age to speak with precision and with vibrant, specific visual language that connects the ideas of the Scripture and the lifestyle of the New Testament church to the 21st century today. Whether you're a leader running a team, a parent raising a, a child, a, a pastor casting vision, or a someone who's preaching, proclaiming Jesus, or a young adult aspiring to the same, listen to me very carefully. My big idea to this podcast is this. If you do not explain, explain, explain our most fundamental values and beliefs, if all you have are token phrases and sound bites that goad crowds into responding, there will come a day when those you lead will no longer know what those values are and why they matter. 
as followers of Jesus, we live in the world of ideas that are prayerfully applied to real life, that beliefs and values are ideas, ideas that have got to be communicated somehow through words. I understand there's all sorts of artistic expressions out there, but most of the time, if we're wanting to communicate something, we have to use language to connect to those ideas. And a failure to explain, to define, and convict and convince the heart of why something has value leads to a loss of meaning. And a loss of meaning means that we are less and less able to articulate and define our deepest held values and beliefs until one day, the divide between the values and ideas that we hold dear and the words that are used to describe them, the divide becomes so great. They're like identical twins separated at birth. They share the same DNA but are completely unaware that the other even exists. I'm sorry if I sound fired up. I know I sound fired up all the time. It's, it's I guess, it's kind of how I roll. But I'm fired up about this because because I was listening to Dr. Albert Moeller and his podcast, The Daily Briefing, the other day, and he made this really powerful statement, and I had to turn off the podcast and write it down. He says, whoever controls the language controls the culture. See, our world with great effort is attempting to deconstruct all fundamental ideas about truth, about God, about morality, deconstructing them so that they can reshape the world as they see fit. And the millennials and Gen Zers that we are called to reach that make up the majority of the human race in the world today, they are craving clarity. They are craving clarity in this world that's unbelievably chaotic. And they are going to move in the direction of those that will speak specifically about the human needs that are in the world today. And we, as the church, have the answer. Think of what I mentioned before when I defined what apostolic is. It was both the utter belief that the Word of God has the final say, the Bible has the final say, and is the final authority for life and practice. And at the same time, we believe that every human being can have a direct personal encounter with the creator of the universe who is none other than Jesus Christ, God manifest in flesh, who died for their sins and rose again from the grave after he was buried on the third day. We are offering people not just a sense of redemption, not just a spiritual experience, but we're also offering them purpose by saying, if you join us, we will change the world with Jesus's help that inside the church is the answer for everything that is in the world. And if we can get more people in the church, more people full of Jesus, then we are going to see so much in our world change for the better on the macro and the micro level from individual lives to individual families until it spills out into our communities and neighborhoods and you get to be a part of that when you join the church but here's what we've got to do 
We've got to in this world where everybody is getting canceled and criticized and, and slapped back for the words that they use and the things that they say. And there is this fear to speak out with precision. There is a fear of conflict. There is a fear of being direct. We, we got to be bold. We have to pray the same prayer that they prayed in Acts 12. Where it says, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy, we may speak thy word, stretching forth thy hand to heal, that signs and wonders be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Let's pray that prayer because at the end of that prayer, the Bible says that the Holy Ghost came and filled all of them and it shook the house where they were praying and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It's hard to be bold. I am afraid most of the time, if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not super confident all of the time. I'm definitely not on myself, but I'm confident in God. And I know that if I can fall all the way down deep into God's word and I can let his spirit speak to my heart and then give me boldness and confidence that I can walk into my culture, that I can walk into my discipleship groups and my church, I can walk to my pulpit, I can walk to my mentorship conversations and I don't have to veil my words but I can convict the heart and capture the mind and speak with precision and with Jesus' help win a generation that will change the world. Explain, explain, explain. You have a great day.